This is Uncomfortable Conversations, the safe space for dangerous ideas, the show where we care not about triggering the tripwires of polite conversation. Uh, our conversations are not always uncomfortable, but they are always about a subject that makes people uncomfortable or that tends to derail us into one of two warring factions or camps. We will not inhabit a camp on this show. We will pursue the truth fearlessly, wherever it may lead us. And you, should you choose to be part of this community, will get a special bonus when we launch our subscription service if you send an email to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com, uncomfy, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y, convos, C-O-N-V-O-S, at gmail.com. You're going to do that right now, aren't you? You're going to pull your phone out of your pants and you're going to open your email and you're going to type uncomfyconvos at gmail.com because Josh told me to. And you're going to put subscribe in the subject line. And that way, you'll be first in line. Well, probably not first, because we've already got quite a lot of people. But you're going to get the benefit when we launch next month a subscription service at uh, no cost or obligation to you just yet. Uh, Today on the show, not Vladimir Zelensky, Misha Zelensky, about the same subject that preoccupies the minds of both gentlemen, uh, probably Misha a bit less than Vladimir, I would imagine. Ukraine. Now, Misha is interesting. He's the war correspondent for the Australian Financial Review. He spent the first two months of the war in Ukraine. He's just about to head back to Ukraine now, so has some interesting insights about how that whole thing has changed over the course of of the war to date. Um, He was a a union boss in Australia, perhaps not a, a, a boss, an almost boss of Australia's oldest union, the uh, the Australian Workers Union, the oldest blue collar trade union. He was the National Assistant Secretary. He wanted to run for federal parliament at this year's uh, election, federal election, uh, and he was running for the seat where Wollongong is based, which is a city in New South Wales. He's a very smart guy. He was a Fulbright scholar. He's a national security expert. Needless to say, he's also a journalist. His political career was derailed in what may or may not be a cancel culture crisis. Very difficult to tell. Ten years ago, he wrote an e-book called He's an Asshole Anyway, with a bunch of mates, which he describes as dating advice by a bunch of buffheads. And it was accused of being sexist and misogynistic, and it was a bunch of lewd blue jokes about blokes and chicks and sheilas and whatnot. And in a letter to the General Secretary of New South Wales Labor earlier this year before the election, the Young Labor Association of the region where he was running for pre-selection for the seat, uh, strongly condemned him, saying that he portrayed a sickening and misogynistic view of women, uh, and that it's not an excuse to call it simply a joke. We don't spend a lot of time on that. I just want to give that as background. We do talk a little bit about the culture wars and about the state of the left, but he very wisely doesn't really take the bait on that. He's most interesting in his understanding of autocracy in the 21st century, Taiwan and uh, Ukraine and the mind of Putin. Enjoy this conversation with Misha Zelensky. Pardon the interjection, but uh, a note on some context. This uh, interview was recorded just before Vladimir Putin called up hundreds of thousands of Russian reservists to go to the front lines in Ukraine. You may remember that news. It was pretty big news last week. Uh, We talk a little bit in this episode about the possibility of Putin conscripting people right across Russia. And Misha says he thinks that's very unlikely. 
what Putin ended up doing right after we'd recorded is a sort of a halfway measure, not quite no conscription, but also not quite conscripting civilians yet. So if we sound clueless about that, it's because, well, it hadn't happened yet. Such are the perils of the timing of a timely show. Enjoy. wildest bit of the hairiest bit of the war those first two weeks in particular were very fluid um mm. and uh you know very dynamic situation on the ground where the front lines hadn't really been set and there were multiple front lines and multiple attacks so yeah i'm uh just heading back mate as we as we record this and when you say you were there you were in ukraine for the first couple of months of the war what does that mean where were you able to go what were you able to do right um so i was in kiev uh, for four days before the war broke out. Uh, so I was there uh, when the first missile struck, etc. And so then I was in Kiev for roughly the first week of the war. Then the majority of people, certainly media, sort of reconvened, for lack of a better word, um, in Lviv. And we can talk about how I got there, which was a bit of a hairy process. And then from Lviv, um, which is a far western city of Ukraine. It's about 75 kilometers from the border of Ukraine to Poland. So majority of people, if they didn't leave, went to Lviv because the, the view was it's extremely difficult for the Russians at the time to even get, to get to Lviv. As we then subsequently found out, it was extremely difficult for them to do much at all. Uh, but Lviv was seen as a relative safe haven, though there were missile strikes against the city whilst I was there. Uh, there was no tanks on the ground, troops on the ground. And so from Lviv, I was able to push out around various cities, Ivana Frankis, uh, Venezia. Uh, both those cities uh, had missile strikes against their airports pr- principally. And then also went down uh, to a place called Krivirig, uh, which is President Zelensky's hometown. And so I did a, a deep sort of profile on the city. And the, the look of it was, you know, a lot of people were saying Zelensky is a Jewish comic um, come uh, a Churchillian war leader and that he's sort of a man playing a role and, I went and had a look at this town because it's like this Soviet tough steel town. It reminded me a bit of Wollongong. So the thesis was maybe he's not playing a role. Maybe he's returning to his roots. Maybe he's a tough man from a tough town. So I went down there and that was right just above Crimea. Uh, So the Russians were actually very close when I went down there. They're about 10 kilometers away. So generally sort of able to travel around whilst I was there. But uh, what you tended to do was sort of anchor yourself somewhere. So that way you you had, you know, I guess a, a point of exit. And what did people think at the time? Like when you were going there, what what were locals feeling about the about their fate in Ukraine? Yeah, mate, it was like stepping into the twilight zone, really. So, yeah, as I was leaving, boarding the flight, now I got one of the last flights, I suspect, from Sydney to Kiev. Uh, you know, I landed there, and you know, you're reading about uh, Russian troops on the north, uh, south, and eastern borders. Uh, of Ukraine, 200,000 troops, you know, war is imminent. And you're sort of walking around, uh, you know, Ukrainian streets, Kiev streets, and it couldn't be more normal. Um, you know, if anyone listening, you know, any street, it's a cosmopolitan European capital, Kiev. And so it felt like, you know, like it was Sydney or New York or any other place. Uh, you know, bars are full, restaurants are full, people are having coffees. And, you know, I was talking to my Ukrainian friends and, you know, they all thought, you know, I was kind of a little bit crazy asking them, do I, do I think there's going to be a war here? And, uh, you know, they they would um, 
sort of dismiss it. And I think there was two elements to that. On the one hand, I think there was an element of willful, willful blindness or you know, hoping for the best. And you can understand that given what's happened. Um, it's been absolutely horrific. So you can understand the, the want uh, to, to keep it, um, you know, it's sort of you know, back of mind and hope that it's, it's actually not going to happen. Mm. And then, um, you know, Putin effect- effectively invaded uh, Ukraine in 2014. So there's the annexation of Crimea. He started a, uh, you know, a civil war or, you know, a separatist war, so-called war, but he'd started that with Russian military equipment and Russian-speaking troops, um, and so-called little green men, as he called them, in the Donbass region. And so as a result, there was a sense of perpetual conflict with Putin. So everyone thought, well, he's already doing it anyway. So I think there was a kind of frog-in-the-pot element to it as well. What did you know of Ukraine? What was your connection to Ukraine before the war? Well, like anyone, you know, I was uh, foreign policy people. I was following closely in terms of uh, what Putin was up to. And I was very concerned about, you know, the annexations in 2014 were deeply concerning. The saber rattling more generally was deeply concerning. On a personal level, uh, my family's like Russian-Ukrainian background. So we come from that part of the world more generally. My family fled from Soviet Union after World War II. And so, yeah. As you can appreciate, uh, family trees out of that part of the world can be a little difficult uh, to trace, uh, but certainly uh, there's family connections into there. My family's Russian-speaking, uh, you know, which a lot of Ukrainians are. Uh, so, you know, I I felt that I understood the area. I, you know, I know a lot of expat communities of Ukrainian and Russian descent, but more generally, my interest was uh, in that kind of geopolitical foreign policy context. I've been following very closely this rise of autocrats and uh, yeah, we are seeing it in real time, which is why I decided to go there. Mm. And I think, I mean, what, maybe one of the reasons why Ukraine has been a weird thing in the public imagination in places like Australia is we don't know much about it. And, you know, there are often wars in funny places like Yemen and African countries, and we don't know much about them as well. And I say funny, obviously, sort of satirically. Uh, and there are parts of the former Soviet empire that are frankly backward. And when you think about, oh, you hear Ukraine, you think Kazakhstan, you think Siberia, you think whatever. Can you give us a picture of what Kiev was actually like before the war? Well, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, people certainly in my Twitter mentioned say, well, no one's talking about other conflicts. And, and that's right. And we, you know, we frankly should talk about these other conflicts. But why did Ukraine capture the imagination? I think, you know, for cultural reasons, it was a land war in Europe. And, uh, you know, it was in a contextual frame that people understood and people had connection to it. And a lot of people either directly or had family that had been involved in that in some way. And that big event, I think, is so, so culturally rooted certainly in the Australian mindset, but I think in the global mindset. But in terms of what Kiev was like, as I said, you know, it, it, it looks and feels, particularly Kiev, looks and feels uh, quite Russo. You know, the, you know, Kiev, ancient Kiev, um, where uh, the first king of uh, what, what, what sort of became you know, the modern Russian identity and it's effectively been co-opted by Russians. Ukrainians, you know, are very proud of that identity as being their starting point, but yeah, the Vikings sailed down the river and started a, a society there in Kiev um, in the sort of uh, early 13th century. And so, actually, it was earlier than that. But um, the city itself, you know, it has those large dome structures, you know, the things that you would expect to see perhaps in the Red Square and things that in, in your mind are kind of very Soviet looking. But it's a very modern, sophisticated city. And what I mean by that is huge tech sector there before the war. 
um, people who might use the startup called Grammarly. I don't know if you see that ad for it. I, yeah. I seem to see it all the time. Means I probably means they're telling me I can't spell. Uh, but um, it was founded in Ukraine. It's a huge business, multi, multi, multi billion dollar business. And you know, Ukrainian tech and Ukrainian sort of business aptitude was actually on the rise there. Now, unfortunately, corruption was a problem. That was actually what brought Zelensky to power. And corruption, frankly, in many post-Soviet states is a problem. Some of those states you mentioned are still adjusting to life after the Soviet Union, even still, and corruption was a factor uh, in Ukrainian uh, public life. And, uh, you know, that, as I said, that was why Zelensky rose to prominence because people had sort of got sick of that oligarch, oligarch rather, model of, um, of governance and that kind of kleptocratic approach to the economy. But overall, uh, what really struck me there, you know, is, as I said, people drinking coffee, bars being full, uh, cosmopolitan restaurants, you know, any type of cuisine that you wanted, like you would expect in any other European capital, but also this real entrepreneurial zest from young people there. Every young person I spoke to um, was looking to start a business or was like, you know, building a presence online or had was working about how to, uh, you know, reach out into you know, the West, into Europe and, and to deepen their own skills so that they could start a business, et cetera. So, it was really quite up and coming. It's real tragedy about what's happened there because these scars that have been inflicted on on you know, the Ukrainian public and on its you know, cities and on its uh, psyche are going to take a long time to heal, irrespective of what happens in the war. And what is happening in the war? Well, uh, as we sit here right now, now you wouldn't want to uh, overreach and say Ukraine's winning, um, but the war's turned. Uh, we certainly know that. I think over the last you know, fortnight, uh, particularly, uh, you've really seen the most monumental part uh, of the war since the battle for Kiev was won by Ukraine and lost by Vladimir Putin. So when he had to fall back out of Kiev, at that point, it was clear that Putin wasn't going to be able to conquer Ukraine completely, right? So he was unable to achieve that territorial conquest aim of his. He still had other aims, uh, which he was uh, trying to achieve in terms of landlocking Ukraine, gobbling up as much of its uh, economic resources as he could. Um, but... Uh, right now, the Ukrainians have been very successful in pushing the Russians out of the northeastern part of Ukraine. So they've taken back uh, huge land masses around Kharkiv, which is in the northeast. They've basically pushed Russians back to the border in some parts in the northeast. And in the south, there's a city called Kherson. It's on the Black Sea. It's a critical Black Sea port. There's a huge battle underway there, and that's kind of pivotal. So everyone expected there was going to be this southern attack, um, what then happened was they kind of almost did a rope dope on the Russians. They kept talking about a southern offensive around Kherson because they wanted it back because they were desperate to reopen their southern seaports. But whilst the Russians reinforced the south, they were very cheekily, very cleverly um, planning an offensive in the northeast around Kharkiv. And so they launched these two front counteroffensives and they had huge breakthroughs in the northeast. The Russians effectively had a collapse in morale had their lines penetrated incredibly, weren't ready for the style uh, the Ukrainians were fighting, which is very fast-moving, very decentralised command structure. And so as a result, the Ukrainians captured territory. They captured more territory in a couple of days than Putin captured for the last five months of the war. Like all of Putin's gains largely came in that first month. And after that, it's been very slow going and very heavy rates of attrition uh, for Putin and the Ukrainians. Attrition is a euphemism for, uh, you know, for loss of life and injury. Mm. But... The, the 
ability for Putin to go forward over the last five months has been very slow. That's why he's been using this bombardment approach. And so to see these, you know, lightning strike incredibly deep um, uh, offensives by the Ukrainians and all the land that they've captured and still are capturing as we sit here, it's extraordinary. And as I, as an analyst and others were sitting there watching it, um, it, you know, it was moving so quickly that it was hard to keep up with almost. And you'd say, well, they sure, surely they couldn't be at this city. And yet then a video would come up and I encourage people to look at these videos because they're so emotional, like, you know, of the flag going up in a captured, occupied Ukrainian township and those citizens um, hugging people. And it was extraordinary, the, the vision coming out of there. But the, the, the ability for a relatively small country like Ukraine to push back a supposed military superpower like Russia was like something that we've never seen. I think we'll study it for a long time to come. And I'm sort of a, a bit bemused and baffled by all of this in the sense that I can understand why there might be battlefield victories from by the Ukrainians. They've got a lot of military support. They've got a lot of financial support. They've got a lot of moral support. They've got a lot of economic support in terms of sanctions on Russia and, and so on. I mean, you know, the West, especially Europe and the United States, are doing whatever they can. On the other hand, you're talking about the former Soviet Union, which has a lot of military equipment, a lot of fighter jets, it's got a lot of nukes, it's got a lot of, I would have thought, jokers left in the pack of, in the deck of cards to play. Is there anything that Putin could be playing if he wanted to go nuclear metaphorically or literally that he's not? And if not, why not? Well, I think to start, you know, why have the Ukrainians been able to succeed and why has Russia failed so badly? I think in many ways, the lesson here is Corrupt states, in the end, um, you know, if you have an autocratic state, they tend to be quite corrupted and they have bad information. So, you know, I think Putin had been talking about the modernization of his uh, military and how, you know, they'd spent all this money upgrading all their equipment, etc. Turns out a lot of it was stolen. All this training that had been promised wasn't really happening. Um, people were faking the training, sending through images. And also, um, you know, he doesn't get any good advice. He doesn't get any anyone challenging him, right? So if, if you or I had a job for 20 years, no one ever challenged us, we'd probably get bad at that job eventually. Okay. And if you're running a country and you're a dictator, no one ever says, not sure about that. He's he say, um, you know, we're thinking about invading Ukraine. Everyone says, great idea, boss, right? Well, otherwise, mm -hmm. as we've seen, uh, you literally fall out of a window. Um, if, you tell mm -hmm. you, uh, if you tell the boss um, that things aren't going well, um, you know, people are getting murdered in Ukraine, right? Uh, sorry, in Russia right now for speaking out on Ukraine. Now, in terms of you know, the, the recent fighting, uh, you know, Napoleon said um, basically the morale counts for every other factor um, combined and more when you're looking at war. So, in terms of military strength, capability, training, equipment, etc., morale is a key thing. And so, the Ukrainians are fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for their lives. They're also got an element of, um, you know, righteousness to their cause with all the war crimes, the shocking war crimes we've seen committed um, by Russian troops in Ukraine. And so they feel like they've got a cause to fight for, whereas the Russians, uh, they're either poorly equipped um, conscripts, they're in now increasingly recruiting criminals, literally, or they've been forced to fight um, basically out of occupied Ukraine parts, you know, in, in Donbass region, those guys have been drawn in and said, you must fight for us. And so when you have an army built on those kind of um, emotional factors, uh, when you see, you know, the uh, oncoming troops that really 
want to win and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not too sure, you can understand why those guys, their morale would break more quickly. There's been reports out of out of Ukraine of Russians having no equipment, no food, having shocking leadership um, in terms of – now, none of these have been particularly confirmed, but reports of soldiers refusing to fight or um, criticising their commanders and essentially attempting – um, you know, mini mini coups of their regiments. So that's the sort of the kind of on the ground conditions in terms of options available to Putin. Well, none of them are particularly good, right? So the big one is a mass mobilization, and mass mobilization means institution of a draft. Now, in Russia, life hasn't really changed a great deal. So yes, there's the sanctions. Russians increasingly can't leave Russia, and there's now visa bans. Um, in parts of the European Union. So it's going to be very hard for Russians to leave. Yes, there's increasingly fewer Western products available to Russian middle class. But overall, Putin has used this wealth that he's got from oil and gas to insulate ordinary Russians. And his big thing is, you know, we can win this war very easily. We're a great superpower. Don't worry about it. We're going to win. Now, if you suddenly then need to institute a draft, that messaging becomes increasingly difficult. He hasn't even called an invasion, right? It's still a inverted commas special operation. And so, you know, his ability to institute a draft politically, and I always say just because there's no elections, well, they have elections, but not proper ones, doesn't mean there's no politics. And he's very concerned about his support in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, where ethnic Russians, they, they don't mind the idea of the country being at war, but they don't want their kids going to fight. Yeah. And so the Russians prefer at this point to have Chechens and other minority groups doing the fighting for them. And so... Putin's ability to draw on those, you know, hundreds of, or they got 140 odd million people in the country. So there's a lot of people there, theoretically, you could draw in. He doesn't want to do it uh, because it's very challenging for him politically. It also takes a long time to train all those troops, equip all those troops. You know, it doesn't just happen overnight. And Russian supply chains are very stretched because of those uh, sanctions that we talked about. They, they're unable to resupply their missiles, resupply their tanks, et cetera. So that's, that's that kind of question about, what could he do? Now, of course, they can continue to bombard Ukrainian cities, uh, you know, more ruthlessly. We've seen that. Some of these, you know, Zelensky called them dead cities. Mm. Um, I know, guess that's and- what I mean. I mean, le- you know, less about uh, conscripting everyone in Russia to go and fight in bloody combat and more about I just assumed that the Soviet Union would have long-range missiles that maybe had right. been built for nukes but could you could have bunker-busting bombs put on them and if you didn't care at all about civilians, which we're told Putin doesn't, you could just smash everything in sight. You could get all every MiG in the country and fly it over mm-hmm. until the skies are black and it doesn't even matter if their anti-aircraft artillery can take out 10% of them. You've got the wherewithal to be able to totally crush and demoralize and traumatize the population. I'm just not enough of a military expert to understand whether or not that's just, you know, uh, me assuming that the, that Russia's military capabilities are more than they are or whether that's just not feasible for some reason yeah. because they've got anti-aircraft missiles that are better than I understand them to be. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel to me like the second most powerful military or third most powerful military in the world has flicked the switch to go full on all out. Am I wrong? Um, well, okay. So like there's a yes and no, right? So, um, I mean, I think at the beginning we did see an all in approach from the Russians and what we saw is that they're not as good as they thought and they're not as good as we thought. Their inability to use integrated fighting. So what you described there in terms of integration between your air, sea and on land, uh, fighting diabolically bad. 
so, you know, what you would expect is, you know, where you have air support for tanks and troops and uh, naval uh, you know, sort of uh, control uh, of, the, of the seas, etc. They've just not done what you would understand a modern sophisticated army to do in the situation. But in terms of their capacity to uh, launch type of strikes you're talking about, and we can come to nuclear because I think that is separate and we should talk about that separately. They're running out of stuff. They're running out of stuff. Like, you know, they've right. fired a lot of missiles. And, yeah. you know, they don't, like, we all kind of think, oh, well, you just build more. Well, th- those things take time, right? I mean, even even the West, as it's been sending uh, weaponry through to Ukraine, no one expected a war of this magnitude. And so no one has the factory capacity really to be developing these things at rapid scale, at this rapid rate of, of use. And so, but in terms of air, air superiority, the Russians don't have it. So... Basically, now, if they send in uh, MiGs or helicopters, et cetera, there's a good chance they're going to lose a number of those. And, again, they're very expensive. Um, yeah. Particularly right. the, the, the planes themselves, but the pilots are extraordinarily expensive in terms of training. And so they're kind of on the horns of a dilemma because, yeah, they could use those things, but they're likely to get shot down by Ukrainian um, you know, anti-aircraft uh, capacity. So... Right, and then I Who's suppose the to do that is extraordinarily from, challenging. Oh, sorry, mate. And, and then I suppose there's propaganda videos from the Ukrainians showing the dead body of the fighter pilot on social media everywhere, and it's bad. It looks bad for Russia, and maybe you don't want to leave yourself completely undefended against the United States, so you don't want to use up all of your military capacity. Yeah, I well, guess there's a lot yeah. of considerations, aren't there? Well, there is certainly that element. I mean, you, you know, if you completely overreach and you have you know, very little military, you also got to be, have the capacity to defend the country, as you said. And they even have drawn on divisions that have um, have an express defence mission. Um, so, yeah, certain tank divisions, et cetera, that are meant to defend Moscow have been deployed. So the Russians are very stretched. I think Putin is shocked. He thought this would all be over in 24 to 72 hours. We're going into the seventh month of the war now the eighth month of the war, not too far away. And, you know, Putin's feeling very, very stretched. And I think the Ukraine has been very clever in essentially using a rope-a-dope strategy, absorbing so much of the strength of that bigger opponent, forcing them to use more might than they want. And then at the same time, being nimble and clever in their tactics and really wearing down and corroding the Russian capability. And you're starting to see the impact of that now. And so Mm -hmm. one thing we should be watching for is how much can the Ukrainians gain before winter sets in? Right. What about tactical nuclear weapons? Well, that's a you know a concern, right? Uh, you know, it's one and of just the people who don't know what tactical and strategic nuclear weapons are. Can you just explain the difference? Well, I mean, tactical nuclear weapons are a term that somehow has been developed to say little a small nuclear bomb. Um, so yeah, that that yeah, big nuclear bombs and small nuclear bombs, and the you know, the nuclear bombs that we would imagine. In, the, in our nightmares of you know countries firing them via uh, intercollect you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles ICBMs you know with huge nuclear clouds over cities that's the kind of traditional one there are these smaller so-called tactical nuclear weapons which are still nukes um, as we understand them but have a smaller payload with a more localized uh, you know, explosion but nevertheless it would be a nuclear weapon deployed for the first time. Uh, anywhere uh, since World War Two, so at this point, um, Putin hasn't used it. I don't, I would, I can't imagine a situation where he would do that because I think that that would likely draw in a NATO response and you know get us into 
really kind of dark and scary areas. And so we've got to hope that that doesn't happen. But I think one of the things that's on that question of nuclear weapons, one of the things that's been most concerning uh, in the way Putin has approached this is that we've never seen before where there's been the threat of use of nuclear weapons whilst um, arming a proxy in a fight. And so what I mean by that is when the Americans were in Vietnam, the Soviets were helping uh, you know, the Vietnamese, but the, the Americans at no point said, well, if you keep supplying uh, you know, the, the Vietnamese, we're going to nuke you, uh, Soviet Union. And same as in Afghanistan when the Russians or Soviets were in there rather and the Americans were helping, at no point um, did the Soviets say, you keep doing this, we're going to nuke you. Putin has been saying, you know, helping Ukraine in a proxy war, so with weapons and money, et cetera, and training, um, could draw a, a nuclear response from Russia. And that is kind of resetting the terms of what we understand, how you would use nuclear threats. And that's very concerning because he's trying to redraw what's understood. And as a result, trying to, I guess, weaken Western resolve, and, you know, all the things you just said, Josh, to say, okay, um, we better not do this because Putin might nuke Ukraine or nuke us. So therefore, we can't stop him doing anything. And so you've got to sort of price to some degree that threat versus, well, how concerned would we be about allowing Putin to invade Ukraine or other neighbouring states or, frankly, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping, would they would, would it be okay if they started to invade? Because once you set the parameters of we're going to do this and if you stop us, we're going to nuke you, you're in a very, very bad place. So Putin mm-hmm. using that, I think, it's been one of the less talked about features of this war. And it's good, I think, that the West has not really buckled to that threat because it would really reset the way we understand geopolitics and it'd be problematic going forward, to say the least, um, if autocrats can use that threat to do whatever they want. But, you know, we should continue to be concerned about it. One thing I would say to this, um, if you are worried about nukes, I see it as a projection of weakness, personally. You know, if the, the war threat. was going well, the war was going well, you wouldn't be talking about nukes, right? No, sure. And, sure. And the, the Americans at no point, even when things weren't going well in Iraq or Afghanistan, at no point said, well, you know, geez, we might have to get the you know the big stick out. Thank God, right? Mm. You know, they, they haven't done that and no other country has done that. So also, you know, whilst Putin is a dictator, there are people around him and one would hope that, you know, if he decided, look, you know what, let's deploy nukes, um, that they may stop him. Having said that... Maybe. They didn't stop him from invading in the first place. Well, right, right. So, I mean, look, I, you know, that, <laughs> yeah, that's certainly yeah. a problem. Let's um, park that for a moment because I'm interested that you that you flagged Taiwan and Xi Jinping and earlier in the in the chat, Misha, you said that you're interested in the rise of autocrats around the world. Hmm. Uh, and I noticed that Joe Biden just said for the fourth time this year that uh, he, that America would come to Taiwan's defense if China were to invade. And then hastily after he says that every time the White House releases a statement saying that US policy on Taiwan hasn't changed. The first time he did it, I thought he might be a bit of a doddering, uh, you know, having a, a senior moment uh, and uh, and just sort of misarticulating himself. But the fact that he's done it four times this year makes me feel that there actually is a, a clear shift or at least a, a, a shift in emphasis, if nothing else, in America's position on Taiwan, which is that the, the strategic ambiguity is a bit less mm. ambiguous than it had been previously and is now a, a firm commitment to the status quo. 
what do you make of of that and of what Ukraine tells us, if anything, about Taiwan? Yeah, it is an interesting question about what happens in Taiwan. So strategic ambiguity is this US policy of, well, we might protect uh, Taiwan if there's an invasion. So it's this hypothetical, it's a, you know, it's a, a proposition based upon a supposition, if you want to put it like that. It, so, you know, deliberately the US gives itself a bit of wiggle room. Now, of course, there is the Defense of Taiwan Act, uh, which authorizes the United States to arm Taiwan and, you know, you the US has been arming um, Taiwan really for multi-decades now to make sure that it's able to resist um, Chinese Communist Party threats. Now, increasingly, she's saying we're taking Taiwan one way or another. Now, they, of course, say we'd like to do it the nice way, um, but you know we're going to take it. And they've, they've undertaken pretty much the largest build-up in military ever, um, certainly since World War II, but almost in history. The build-up has been extraordinary, and, and one of its principal aims is the reuniting, so-called reuniting, of Taiwan with the mainland. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party has never actually controlled Taiwan. It's always been an independent, governed island, a democracy, really, since the 80s. And uh, since the Civil War, the, the CCP has never been there. But in terms of Joe Biden, it is an interesting point. A lot of people focus on what Biden's saying. He's saying if Xi Jinping and the CCP invade Taiwan, Yes, the United States would come to Taiwan's aid. And people are saying this is a change in US policy because he's not being ambiguous. He's being clear. Mm. Um, I think really the person that's changed the calculus in Taiwan is Xi Jinping. Up until now, the question of Taiwan has sort of been unresolved. And it's been done in this sort of, yes, there's one China, but we don't want to see a war there. There's, we would like to see a democracy stay in Taiwan. That's the position of Australia, one China, but respecting um, Taiwan's right to exist. And everyone sort of talks around the problem. Now, Xi Jinping comes to power in 2013 and since then has really been upping the rhetoric and the saber-rattling against Taiwan to the point now where pretty much every day they're conducting military drills or flying aircraft into uh, Taiwanese airspace and essentially continue and also fueling political warfare, misinformation campaigns, and just constantly putting the Taiwanese uh, people under stress. And so, in my view, a lot of people are focusing on, well, what's Biden saying about the US position? But frankly, if you want to know who killed strategic ambiguity, it's Xi Jinping. By constantly talking about invading Taiwan, and he does, um, you know, the, the rest of the world has to start to price that in, into its own thinking about, well, what would we do? And to give an example... Um, a very real example, on the mainland China, the CCP have built a dummy of Taipei to continually practice invasions of it. So the, the capital of Taiwan, they run invasion drills on it. So if you're the Taiwanese, mm. and the Taiwanese have been running around, you know, rightly so, around the world saying, hey, um, help us out, guys. We've got this very marauding threat right on our um, coastline. And, you know, the way I look at it, as an Aussie, is, you know, that's a that's an island democracy of nearly just under 25 million people being menaced by the CCP. You know, we're in a pretty similar position as Australians. And, you know, Ukraine feels a long way away. Taiwan, where's that? But if we, the royal we, you know, the, the free liberal societies, West, whatever you want to call it, start to allow democracies, thriving democracies, be gobbled up by autocrats because they don't like them, 
Um, that's problematic for a small country like Australia and a middle power where we need the world to be safe and stable to survive, right? And if, if it becomes a might is right environment, down the bottom of the world, Australia um, with a very, uh, you know, an imperialistic, autocratic, increasingly totalitarian CCP with global ambitions is not in our interest. And so we need to make sure that autocrats like Putin and Xi don't think that it's in their interest to invade countries or neighbours or areas that they believe falsely belong to them. It's these narratives of, well, these things always belong to us, we should, we should be able to take them back. Putin with Ukraine, she uh, with Taiwan, you know, and, and it's important to bust those narratives as much as anything else. You tried to become a federal member of parliament this uh, this year. You wanted to run for pre-selection for the Labor Party. Is the Labor Party and the left broadly in places like Australia and the Democrats in America on board with this vision that you're talking about? I mean, you can speak freely because you're, you're not an MP, but, you know, there is a concern in Australia that the left tries to have it both ways and doesn't want to be seen as being racist towards China, doesn't want to be seen as tub-thumping and chest-pumping and chest-pounding and, you know, uh, and, and, and bullying, so wants to kind of placate the Chinese. Uh, can we have it both ways? Well, I'd say it depends on, you know, and not to get into a uh, esoteric talk about my side of politics, but which part of the left are you talking about? I mean, we just talked about Joe Biden, who's a Democratic president, um, arguably changing US policy about the defence of Taiwan. So Joe Biden's got no illusions mm. about the threat of the Chinese Communist Party or Putin and all the weaponry that they've been sending to Ukraine. And that's been bipartisan supported. And frankly, in Australia as well, we've made the biggest contribution outside of NATO allies to Ukraine. And so we've been uh, sending a lot there because it is, for all the reasons that I've just said, um, in our interest collectively. And I think certainly, you know, as a Labor Party member, um, you know, I've been very pleased to see uh, the things that Australia's been doing to support Ukraine, but also the continuity of policy in terms of acquisition of subs, AUKUS, et cetera, and, and understanding that threat um, in our region. And But unfortunately, you know, there are parts of, you know, call it inverted commas of the left or um, people on progressive side of politics that see all war as unnecessary. And I, you know, look, mate, I wish none of this was true. When I talk about these threats from the autocrats, I, I wish it wasn't true as well, but, you know, Pretending it doesn't exist doesn't make it any less true, Josh. And that, mm. that's the problem, right? So as we've seen this bad behaviour on the increase, um, and whether or not, I don't believe this is one side of politics, I think all sides of politics, so there's been engaged in a, a, a policy of wishful thinking that hopefully this will somehow resolve itself and the bad behaviour has just increased and increased. And unfortunately, the lesson for us all with the Ukraine invasion is um, bad, bad behaviour, if tolerated, only triggers worse behaviour. And so I think the world's woken up to it, thank God. Um, and so, you know, if you want to bring it to an Australian context, you haven't seen any real big changes um, from the Labor Party in terms of its approach to supporting Ukraine, um, even though we're not a NATO ally, or, you know, upping our acquisition of nuclear subs, et cetera, um, principally to well, I mean, they weren't, weren't, they weren't going to back out of the biggest flagship, uh, you know, foreign policy uh, event that had happened in the part, in a generation by backing yeah. out of the uh, the nuclear submarine deal with the US and the UK after it had been so controversial. I mean, the, I guess the question is more a rhetorical one and yeah. you know, the, the emphasis that you put and a concern that maybe the current foreign minister of the centre-left party is more conciliatory towards Beijing than, uh, than the centre-right party had been. Yeah, look, I think... Um, I think the government has done all the right things. You know, uh, Anthony Albanese went to Kiev, which is great to see, and I think it was really appreciated. 
um, by the Ukrainians. You've seen Penny Wong um, uh, going around the Pacific, which I think is really important. If you look at where we, where we, the Royal We, Australian government has dropped the ball, it's in our engagement in the Pacific. And I think during the election to see that the fact that the uh, the Chinese Communist Party are looking to build, let's call it what it is, a base in the Solomon Islands, which is, you know, 2,000 kilometres off our shore, which is basically, you know, effectively in our backyard, that is extraordinarily troubling. And, um, you know, how we've allowed that to happen, you know, mm. is a collective failure. And so, but I think, you know, to broaden it out, not to, to sort of keep it into, you know, party politics, there is a challenge on the left in terms of people see that, you know, Western imperialism, if you want to call it that, is at fault for everything and that other countries have no agency. And so um, they will say, oh, well, you know, the US did this and therefore all other countries have done that. And they almost take it as an approach of my enemy's enemy is my friend. And that's very foolish. And unfortunately, that you know, you've got to look at what, you know, the bad guys are saying. I say, look, you don't have to believe me, but at least believe Xi Jinping. They're saying it openly. They're talking mm. about a long long uh, struggle against the West and they're talking about it in ideological terms. And so I think what happened after the end of the Cold War, unfortunately, was we thought it was all over and everyone has forgotten how to think about things outside of economics. So outside of what does this mean for trade, people can't think in terms of ideology anymore. And what you're dealing with in the CCP particularly, but Putin as well, is that you're dealing with highly ideological regimes that see the world very, very differently to us. We've got to be real about that rather than pretending that it doesn't exist and, you know, that if we somehow don't acknowledge the fact that China's trying to militarise the South China Sea or build a base in, um, uh, in the Solomon Islands or conduct foreign interference uh, uh, operations into our politics, that if we ignore these things somehow that China will be grateful for that and that it will leave us alone is just the triumph of wishful thinking and, unfortunately, this horrific war in Ukraine is exactly where that kind of thinking gets you. What do you make of the faction of the left that engages in that willful thinking? Is there a, I mean, I speak often on this show about the, I guess, the struggle that for the heart and soul of the heartland that the left is sort of uh, uh, undergoing, that they're, and this is less relevant at the top levels of um, of the parties, you know, at the level of Anthony Albanese or Joe Biden and more at a grassroots level where you've got a lot of passion for traditionally marginalised communities uh, who have identities that people can easily easily think of as being traditionally oppressed and you have much less energy around traditional left-wing notions of fairness and equality uh, in an economic sense less less notions of of tackling inequality of social justice and so on and more of an obsession uh, about uh, racial and gender justice that's one of the things that did in your pre-selection can you tell us about that that snafu and what it taught you so, well, that, that was a bit of a long wind up there in terms of the, uh, the, the, the national security questions, et cetera. But I'll, maybe if we can just take them in, in, in order. But just quickly, I mean, I think no left to centre party can ever hope to win an election if it doesn't have good answers on national security. And people are right to want their government to have good answers about keeping them safe. And they want their communities to be safe and their country to be safe. And I think... Um, you know, you've got to really be able to answer those two headline questions of kitchen table economics, keeping the economy going uh, and keeping it going in the interests of people, and then being able to defend the country if it's required. Um, now, you know, hopefully it never comes to that, 
but certainly uh, that is you know, uh, you know something that you ha- it's kind of the the, the 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 ticket to play. You know, it's not going to guarantee that you win an election, but it's the um, necessary but not sufficient condition, if you can call it that. So if you don't be if you're not able to answer those two tenants um, uh, of sort of people's concerns at a national level, then you're really never going to win an election in terms of. Um, this rise of identity politics, if you want to call it that. Um, what I'd say about that is uh, I think, like anything, there's a lot of merit to the critique um, that people bring forward. Now, what I mean by that is has there been issues of racism in uh, many countries, particularly the United States with this history of of, rape, of, sorry, of, of slavery, et cetera? Um, yeah, have, has there been problems around that? Look, yes, Absolutely. Um, but then when it's taken to its logical conclusion of treating everybody as separate, it actually can be very disruptive for politics. What I also would say, you know, more generally to people who might be progressive that are listening, is that culture wars are designed to be a distraction. Um, they're triggering by their very nature. Um, they lead to a lot of shouting from people, you know. Um, Vegemite's been banned. Well, what? You know, and then they you know, you know, get on the phone and start screaming at somebody and then they scream back at you and it's very counterproductive and very um, disenfranchising, I think, for the people that we need to reach. But what it also masks, and um, you, know, you sort of touched on that, but fundamentally, you know, I'm a trade unionist, but I'm someone that believes in making sure people are able to have a good life. And uh, what it masks is, I think, what the, the true fault lines in society are, which is who has money and who doesn't, and tends to be, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of focus in that critique um, uh, in people that, if you want to call it identity politics, say, well, who has power, who doesn't, who, who has money has power. And and frankly, when we get trapped into these fights, um, which are a distraction, these culture war fights, and we all know what they are, because if you go on Twitter, you can see them, or on Facebook, you can see them, when you talk about the reasons for that, um, they can be distraction and they're kind of confetti in the air from the main game. There was a stat that came out just recently, which is unbelievable. It was a study done by the Financial Times, a British paper, saying that many people in advanced democracies now, unfortunately Australia is not yet there yet, but we are heading that way, have lower qualities of life than many quite poor countries. And the example they used in the United Kingdom was the bottom 20% of that country now have worse lives than people living um, in Slovenia which is quite a poor country uh, in Eastern Europe. And so that, to me, is the main game. Now, it's not to say that there's not worthy things that need to happen. Um, And I think someone like Bob Hawke got it right. And when I look at Bob Hawke, how was he able to do things like um, help Indigenous people do huge environmental things, you know, um, lock up the Antarctic as a national park, all these things that by today's standards would be, inverted commas, work politics, was that they got the kitchen table stuff right. Um, They had honest conversations with people. And, you know, there was no um, sneering, you know, because I do think the left of centre parties can be capable of sneering at people and saying, if you don't agree with this view, if you have a more socially conservative view, uh, you're a bigot. And that's never a great message. It's a shocking way to approach any conversation. Um, But there also was no pandering. They also didn't. And and I think a lot of people, um, when they look at the identity politics stuff, say, well, hang on a second, we need to pander to people with bad views. Well, you don't need to pander to them, but you can have an honest conversation with people and, and challenge them on views without saying you are a bad person for having this view. And I think getting that mix right is a critical piece and, um, you know, being able to to find you know, a way to have 
you know, conversations amongst ourselves where we're not treating other people like an enemy. And I think that really is one of the biggest problems is we take everyone on worst faith. So anything that anyone says that's absolute worst faith assumption and therefore not only do I disagree with you, you are now my enemy. And so uh, Barack Obama talked about saying, he says, you know, we need to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And, you know, I call it, you know, being civil. In a civil society, we need to be civil to one another. And we've really, unfortunately, lost that ability. And it's been very, very corrosive to our societies. You know, we've talked about, you know, left-wing politics in that context, but you look at what's happening to right-wing politics in the United States and around the world, and it's become so crazy and toxic. And it's very difficult to see how these two extreme parts of our politics are shaping so much of what the majority of people want, which is to have a decent life. And I think the the sooner that people that have ordinary kind of approaches to life get more involved in either side of politics, the better. Did you feel that the people who, who disagreed with your pre-selection on the basis of that e-book that you wrote in 2012 were wrong or did you regret the book? Oh, look, I mean, I, you know, this is a podcast so no one can see me cringing, but, um, you know, that I, I, you know, in my youth did a silly thing where I, uh, you know, wrote a, a dating advice book with a couple of knuckle-headed mates and it was a very bullf-headed effort. Um, I've obviously apologised for that on a number of occasions. And look, you know, I think going back to what I was saying, I think I don't believe that there was any sort of cancel culture thing at play here. It was more that you've, you've made these jokes, they were off colour and they were bad and you should apologise for them, which I, of course, did. You know, I think there's an element of intent versus execution. We hoped that it would be a light-hearted approach um, to dating, we weren't trying to offend people. We obviously did, and I've certainly apologised for it. Happy to do that again now, Josh. But, but how is it not a cancel culture thing? I mean, I don't know because I haven't read the book, so I don't know whether whether you're <laughs> well, a sexist mate, or, a, or a misogynist. But save you know, yourself I, the hassle, mate. Just <laughs> the point. The point isn't the you know, and who knows whether cancel culture is a useful term at this point or not. Right. But the point about right. cancel culture from those who are concerned about it or who believe in it is that instead of addressing the specific concern, you're saying that the person who's responsible for producing uh, the the uh, item of concern has to be excommunicated from all kinds of completely unrelated uh, professional duties, like fired from their job or prevented from pre-selection. Isn't that the definition of cancel culture? Yeah, and I, as I said, look, I don't think that that's what happened to me in this occasion. I think well, you, you were know, prevented from. I mean, you were pushed out of pre-selection because of something that you'd written that was off colour. Well, that well, that was one of the reasons, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Um, there are other things at play as well, uh, but ultimately, I was unsuccessful. The locals, um, which is their absolute right, and you know, my hometown Wollongong chose somebody else, and she's going to go on to do a great job, and that's just how politics works. But in terms of what happened to me, look, people are going to weaponize things in politics, right? And unfortunately, that did happen to me, where people, I think took things at their absolute worst face value and used them, you know, against me in a political sense. And, you know, I did that to myself. I have to own that and we all have to own our own stories. And I put my hand up and said, I did the wrong thing. And most people I speak to, you know, accept that, right? And I think, again, coming back to my point about if you want to use it in a cancer culture context, but culture wars, I think the majority of people get quite exhausted by this sense of everyone has a ton of bricks coming down on them for if they did something wrong. I think... If you apologise and you try to atone for something, then I think, you know, we, we teach everybody that. You say, listen, you know, your life's not over if you did something wrong. Your life is how you respond to the wrong thing that you did. 
And so, look, put my hand up, said it was the wrong thing to do, extremely embarrassing, and I've had to endure, rightly, a lot of public criticism. It's very embarrassing to go through that, and it caused me to grow a lot as well, Josh. You know, I um, kind of reflected quite a bit. Now, this is a very, very long time ago. It actually has come out in the past. Incidentally, only tends to come up when I put my hand up for pre-selection, but people can make of that what they will. But it, it caused me to grow as a person. You know, I reflected on what sort of man do I want to be? Is this how I want people to see me? And, you know, I don't have those views and, you know, I don't look at it as, I certainly wasn't a PhD on gender studies. It was a lighthearted dating advice book that was poorly executed by some buffheads, myself included. And you know, you've got to own that in terms of how people treat you. Well, all I'd say is we need to think very carefully in society about do we want people to correct course or do we want to excommunicate? And I think... That's a genuine conversation for society to have. And I think most people, this is a thing, uh, you know, the conversation on either side of politics is very dominated by kind of a symbiotic relationship between two very loud people that need one another. Um, the shock jocks on, on either side of life need one another. They're in a tailspin. And, you know, the rest of us that don't like life to be like that, that would rather say, well, look, let's take people as they are. Let's look at the grey, you know, Let's understand what the issues are at play and let's you know, treat each other with a little humanity. And, you know, if you do make a mistake in life and you are able to own up to it and are able to correct for it, and I've, you know, done things in my career which people can look at where I've tried to um, atone for that, um, you know, in, in supporting young women and leaders, et cetera. And, you know, at no point have I tried to defend it. I've always apologised and I hope people can take my apology at, at face value and understand that, you know, we're all capable of, um, doing things that were ill thought out, but if we if we do apologise for them, that perhaps um, that can help us grow and help us change. And if that's what we're trying to affect, change, then that's the more important thing versus uh, punishment. I think there's too much focus in life generally about punishing rather than seeking to shape and change behaviour. Uh, I, I want to let you go. I don't want to keep you all afternoon. But looping back <laughs> to national security, I uh, I'm interested in your in whether you're an optimist or a pessimist or neither in the medium to longer term. Like if you fast forward to the middle of this century, in the 2050s, th- through the lens of Putin and Xi Jinping, what does the world look like? Well, it is the question, isn't it? I mean, as a progressive, I have to maintain positivity. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to get out of bed, mate. Um, you know, it's very easy. Um, you know, for anyone listening, it can get very easy to get very, very dark about the world. You go, you sit and go, geez, we are just stuffed. If you look at, um, uh, climate, if you look at, uh, what's happening in Europe right now, if you look at the way that economies are spinning out of control in terms of inflation and inequality, and then you look at things like what's happening to the Republican party in the United States and its threat. To democracy more generally and it can get very easy mate to go geez we're never ever ever going to win this struggle but overall i think you know for all the reasons we talked about in terms of ukraine i think it's been a wake-up call uh, for all of us to say um you know we don't want to have a world that's dominated by autocrats we don't want to have a world um that where the strongest biggest gorilla in the room gets to set the rules for everybody else. We want to have an open and free um, exchange of uh, ideas and values where people can express themselves and societies can flourish and express themselves. And I think that's why Ukraine is so important because what happens there 
matters everywhere. You know, our fates are intertwined. So overall, though, when I look at it and when I do get dark about the world, Josh, and it can happen, believe it or not, mate, um, even some of my sunny optimism uh, <laughs> can, uh, can get, can get um, dark about the world. You look at history, right, and people say, oh, man, we're going back into the 1930s, the gathering storms, and, you know, we had economic dislocation just like in 1929 with the Great Depression, which then led to the rise of fascism in Europe, which then gave us World War II um, and the horrors of World War II. And it's very easy to draw that parallel. If you look around the world right now, you can see you can see those parallels, right? But another, I think, more helpful parallel is a more recent past, which is the 60s. And so if you look at the 1960s, the West in many ways really on its ass. Um, so in the United States, if we you know use that as our example, um, yeah, they had uh, you know, multiple assassinations of leaders. So yeah, everyone talks about the United States has never been more divided. Well, unfortunately, it has. You know, they've had a civil war, obviously, but they've had political violence as part of you know, mainstream political culture there in the not so recent past. So uh, you know the um, sorry, not so distant past rather. You know, JFK gets killed. Uh, Martin mm. Luther King gets killed. Robert Kennedy gets killed. During that period in the 60s, the Soviet Union, when you look at all its headline um, uh, human indices, was surging ahead in terms of education, economic growth, industrial policy. Um, of course, they beat the Americans into space. And so the world was sitting there going, man, like we are just in absolute dire straits. And in many ways, over the last 10 years, uh, autocrats have been selling to the world saying, hey, guys, Forget about this democracy stuff. Look how messy it is. It can't deliver for you. Look at the Chinese Communist Party. You no longer need to have economic growth and personal liberty together. They can be severed. Those links can be severed. You can have wealth and we'll look after you and don't worry about all this crazy, silly democracy stuff because all that really does is divides us and creates chaos. But, you know, again, to draw this analogy, the, the low point really for the West was uh, when they pulled out of Saigon, Saigon Falls. Oh, my God, we've had a, you know, the domino theory is real. The communists are taking over countries all over the world. We've lost. Now, that was in the 70s. But, of course, the US beat the Russians to the moon, beat the Soviets to the moon. And by the 80s, only about 10 to 15 years after, it appeared that the Soviets couldn't be stopped. Soviet Union was gone. And Mm. so... These big regimes can seem so powerful and how could you ever get rid of them? And my God, they're going to come and get us all. But the thing about uh, closed systems, the thing about autocratic regimes is they tend to be extractive. And what I mean by that is those at the top tend to enrich themselves at the expense of those at the bottom. That corruption becomes very pervasive throughout society and it creates structural weaknesses. They don't get the feedback loop that we get. Now, democracies, for all their uh, dysfunction, and you know, Churchill said it's the worst system apart from any other system, and I think it's beautifully put, as he often does, it actually has feedback loops that strengthen us. And that sort of chaos of democracies and that sense of, oh, my God, everything is so impossible to get your head around, and, God, we're never going to prevail if we can't agree on anything, those constant feedback loops actually strengthen the system overall and that innovation approach 
actually, in the end, make society stronger because you actually get challenges to ideas and challenges to thinking. It makes people reach further in terms of their enterprise. It makes people reach further in terms of their thinking. And before you make a silly decision, um, like invading your neighbour, people will pull you up and challenge you on it. It doesn't always happen. Of course, the Iraq war is a great example where a democracy can get it very wrong. But overall, that um, feedback loop in societies does strengthen us. And I think those big, shiny um, autocratic regimes that like to project strength are much, much weaker on the inside than they like to pretend or project. We've seen that with the Russians. They are very much a rotten burrow, top to bottom corrupt. And the people, frankly, I think you're seeing that with the soldiers in the field, don't believe in the mission that Putin has sent them on. And all of them realise that there's not a great deal of value in dying for fat cats and lies on yachts um, who've stolen all the wealth of your country. And you look at China, they've got big problems. Yes, we've got huge challenges in the West, but they've got demographic challenge where already they're old before they're rich. They've got huge debt problems. They've got all sorts of challenges of corruption throughout their system. And I think overall, if we get our system right, Democracies won the Cold War, not because we had the better ideas, but we had the better outcomes. And what I mean by that, people didn't read Eastern Europe, they didn't read Marx, and they didn't read Jefferson, and then they said, you know what, Marx has got the better ideas. Oh, sorry, Jefferson's got the better ideas. We'd like to get on board with that. Western Berlin was a better place to live than Eastern Berlin, which was a shitty place to live. And Mm. so humanity voted with its feet. And so if we can get our places right, our societies right, and live up to our own values, and that's a critical bit, living up to our values, then I think we actually will prevail in the end. But we are going through a very choppy period right now, Josh. Nothing's guaranteed. And we have to stand up for our values as well. Living up to them is important. We are at times doing that, but not always. And we've got to get things right, like rampant inequality, social dislocation, all the challenges around people wanting representation of of, of themselves in the body politic, et cetera, and the opportunity to advance themselves, but also standing up for values for all the reasons we talked about. We're now seeing that's us doing that in Ukraine. It's going to be critical that we do that between now, I think you said 2050, but the big challenges I think are going to come over the next decade, mate. Yeah. Your analysis of the end of the Soviet Union being uh, about material questions rather than ideological ones reminds me of PJ O'Rourke's line that uh, the end of the Soviet Union was amazing because it was this huge empire of tanks and guns brought to its knees because nobody wants to wear Bulgarian shoes, which, <laughs> I, love, which I love. Misha, on your optimistic note, I'll, I'll end it. Thank you so much uh, for, for your insights. It's great to talk to you. A, a great pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, good luck with the show. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.